Listen, my name is uh, Trevor Miller. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb United Methodist Church, and I consider it a great privilege, a great honor to be able to open the scriptures with you today, to be able to wrestle with God, wants, what he wants to teach us this morning, that we might be changed and transformed in some kind of way. But before we do that, let's pray together, and then we'll jump right in. Would you bow with me? Father God, we come before you this morning, and we want to recognize our dependence upon you. We pray, Father, that right now that you would use your word, your precious scriptures, God, that you might speak into our life, God, that you might show us the best way to live, that you might awaken within us, God, a new desire to live for you and to live your way. God, we love you and we're thankful for this time to be able to connect with you and with one another. And so in your name we pray. Amen. So I don't know about you, I've been very thankful for this resilient series. Anybody else enjoyed this series as we've walked through this life of Joseph and I think one of the reasons is because for a lot of us, I mean, we can really relate to what Joseph goes through throughout his life. I mean, we've covered uh, really 20 years of Joseph's life from the time we kind of pick up with him in chapter 37 to we, where we find him today in chapter 42. We've seen all kinds of things happen, highs and lows, difficulties and trials. And what is amazing to me is that Joseph uh, kind of makes it through each and every one of them. He has the way of bouncing back. He's resilient through all of it. And so we see Joseph, uh, he has this dream that God gives him. As you remember, he tells his dream to his brothers potentially a little bit prematurely, uh, maybe with some immaturity, to the point where they didn't appreciate it very much, and he gets thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. He lives there until his, uh, Potiphar's wife tempts him, and, and um, eventually he is then put into jail. After he's put into jail, he hears of some other dreams that he interprets, and eventually he eventually makes it out of jail. And now we find him in one of the most powerful positions he's been in his entire life, as he's in Egypt now over almost everything. And God has blessed him in incredible ways. He's gone through all this, and every single time that he's gone through a situation, the question that the reader asks, that we ask as we listen to the story is, how will he respond to this? I mean, how will he respond to this kind of setback? How will he respond to this kind of difficulty? How will he respond to this kind of power and authority? What will Joseph do? That's the question that's asked all throughout the story. But what's interesting to me is each and every time that Joseph is given the opportunity to navigate a tough situation, he does it, and he does it with grace. And the reason is this, I believe. There's a line that is said over and over and over throughout this whole story, and it's very simple. And it says this, the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of thing, but in any times in my life I can relate to this, where I've gone through a difficult situation, and the only reason I know that I can be resilient in the middle of it and bounce back from it is simply because the Lord is with us. He's with us. He's not just with Joseph. We're given this story because it says something about our lives as well, that the Lord is with us. We can be resilient people. We can bounce back. We can resist temptation. We can handle the power that God places into our hands. And here's why. The Lord is with us, and he's with us today. That is good news. So I believe for us to experience the kind of life that God has for us, the kind of life that God wants for us, each and every one of us have to learn how to become resilient people how to bounce back from difficult times. A few years ago, I was in college. <laughs> a few years ago. 
uh, at Columbia International University, CIU here in town. So I got connected to this church. And um, when I was at CIU, I was, out, I was a youth ministry major and I was studying to do youth ministry. I thought that's what I would do the rest of my life. And I was an outdoor leadership minor. And so for my outdoor leadership minor, I had to travel to Oregon for 15 days with an organization called Outward Bound. And what I did for 15 days was I was with a group of people. I didn't know them, but we traveled through Oregon. And we did 100 miles on the Deschutes River. We learned how to captain rapids and we slept on the side of the river. And it was an amazing experience. I had three uh, different pairs of clothing for the entire 15 days. Do the math. So we were on the river the entire way for 100 miles. We got out of the river and then we did 22 miles through the Cascade Mountains past the south, middle, and north sister. It was beautiful. We were there in July and there was six feet of packed snow everywhere we hiked at the very top of these mountains. But as we came down out of the mountains on the other side, as we were hiking out on our, on our uh, uh, day before our last day, we came to a section of woods that had been burnt by a forest fire the year before. And so about a mile of our hike through this area, as far as you could see in this valley that we went through, was just scorched earth. Uh, all the trees were blackened. Everything had been burned. And it was about a year before we were there this took place. And so as we're walking through everything, hiking through all this, literally, as you'd hit the floor, there was ash still there from, from years uh, or the year before as this, for, uh, this fire had run through this entire area. And so as I started hiking through this with all these guys, I started looking around. I realized that in little spots along the trail, there were these little sprigs of green that were popping back up around logs and around things and and sure enough, when I saw the first sign of life, all of a sudden now I started to see signs of life everywhere as we were hiking through this kind of scorched earth, this burnt uh, place. And I began to realize that in the middle of all of this, there was life that was coming back when potentially it looked like everything had been destroyed. This is what it means to be a resilient person. I, I think being resilient means that we have the ability to find life in the middle of death. We have the ability to find hope in the middle of loss. And this is the story of Joseph. Joseph loses everything, and yet he's resilient, and he finds life, and he finds hope. It's the story of the gospel. In the middle of death and loss, Jesus Christ comes back to life and offers hope all anew. This is the story that's so familiar to us. Now, in this story of Joseph's life, we see him experience some of the most difficult things that any person would ever have to go through. Can you imagine living the life that Joseph has lived for 20 years within this story? And yet, he comes out the other side stronger than before. But we're going to find him now in chapter 42 as the story continues on. In chapter 42, I think Joseph is about to face something that may be the, the, the biggest test that he faces this entire time as he goes throughout his life. And once again, he's going to have a choice to make. How will Joseph respond here? What will he do? And so we find Joseph now at 37 years old in chapter 42, and he's living in the land of Egypt that he's entered into during this famine. And during this famine, Joseph has been placed in charge of everything. If you remember, he, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and the dream talked about seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Now Joseph handled that information very, very well. For the first seven years of plenty, he helped store up food in Egypt to provide for those who would be in need of food during the seven years of famine. And so Joseph has been placed in charge of most of Egypt. I and mean, he's incredibly powerful within Egypt at this point in time. God has blessed him. But in chapter 41, at the very end of chapter 41, we read a very interesting sentence that comes out. And it says this at the very end of chapter 41. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So things had gotten difficult and weren't just difficult in Egypt, though Joseph was providing for folks in Egypt food because he had prepared well, but he was actually providing food for the entire region, not just Egypt, but also including a place called Canaan. You may remember that name because that's where Joseph's family resides and where they live 20 years previous. 
So the famine has hit everywhere, um, and including Canaan and where Joseph's family is. So we're going to read in chapter 42 now. This, this sets up what's about to take place in these first two verses of 42. Here's what it says. When Jacob, Joseph's father, with his family that's been forgotten about him for the past 20 years, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Which I think is really funny that Jacob is responding like this. Why quit looking at each other. Find some grain. He says this. Go now to Egypt to find grain. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Who's in Egypt? Joseph. Who's going to Egypt? Joseph's brothers. So in chapter 42, we are introduced to this whole new storyline that takes place. 20 years after Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, forgotten by his family, living in Egypt, now Jacob tells his brothers to go to Egypt to get grain. Otherwise, they won't survive. The first readers of this story would have been shocked by this. Because as you read through the story, you're like, okay, Joseph's moving on. He's past all this stuff. He's he's being blessed by God once again. Surely his family's not going to enter back into the picture. Guess what? Chapter 42, guess who's coming to town? Joseph's brothers. This is what I would call a plot twist. You know what a plot twist is? You're watching a show, you're reading a book, and all of a sudden something happens that you didn't see coming, and it changes the whole direction of the entire story. I mean, some of our favorite movies are our favorite movies because of the plot twists, aren't they? Like 1980, remember this movie, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back? Toward the end of the movie, you have Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, and you have the famous line, what does Vader say to him? I am your father. Changes everything. It's a whole new direction. 2004, there was a movie called The Village. If you remember the movie The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. And in this story, this village, you are, you are th- uh, kind of uh, conditioned to believe the entire time this village exists way back in the past. And turns out it's in modern day. But a few people had created to feel that way so people wouldn't experience the suffering of the world. Plot twist at the end of the movie. Actually, in 2013, there was another movie called, um, where'd it go? Frozen. In this movie, Frozen, in 2013, you find out Hans, who seems to be the perfect uh, prince all throughout the entire story, turns out to be a villain. It's a plot twist. Here's what I'm convinced by. In this story and in my own life of experience, too, our God is a God of plot twists, is he not? I mean, how many times within your life you've experienced kind of a, a change of direction within circumstances, a change of direction within our lives specifically? And every time God does this, God is working behind the scenes sometimes things that we know nothing about. But God is a God of plot twists. This is what he's doing within the life of Joseph as well. Chapter 42, Joseph's family is coming to Egypt. Certainly Joseph would never run into them again, but sure enough, here they come. All throughout Joseph's life, it's been so clear that God has been up to something. For the first readers, this would have been amazing to them to recognize that God is working. You see, God is doing a ton of things through this whole story, but one of the things that he seems to be doing is helping to revive reconcile, restore a broken and dysfunctional family. Amidst all the things that God is doing, rescuing the whole region by having Joseph in Egypt providing food, in the midst of all that, he also seems to be interested in reconciling this broken family. What I believe God is doing here in this plot twist is creating an opportunity an opportunity for a family that to this point in time had been the family of God to come back and relate to one another again. My friends, this is probably one of the most difficult roads that we ever walk within our life. Reconciliation. Restoration of relationships. This road, this path, I believe, is one that we have to have resilience for if we're ever going to see relationships around us be restored. And I'm convinced that God 
is all about reconciliation. And here's the reason why. You know, we're told in the gospels that God becomes Jesus Christ. He pulls on skin, walks among us in the incarnation, and then he eventually gives his life on a cross. He dies, is buried in a, in a tomb, and then he raises from the dead. You know why? Because God was interested in reconciling all of creation to himself. God was interested in having a right relationship with you and with me to restore the brokenness that had taken place. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of reconciliation. And so probably all of us in this room, at one point or another, we've experienced some kind of painful thing that has taken place within a relationship. Maybe some of us, we have broken hearts still today. We've experienced tears. We've experienced feelings of betrayal. Probably all of us. But God has a way of placing these plot twists within our life to give us an opportunity to create the environment for reconciliation to take place. I'll give you an example. My wife and I, my wife's an amazing woman, but occasionally we have an argument. Occasionally we disagree. And I'm not sure if any men in the room are like me, but if we get into an argument or a disagreement, oftentimes I'm like, I'm going to the grocery store. Anybody? I'm just going to escape the situation. I'm going to go buy some food. So I'll go to the grocery store, but every single time that I'm in a situation like this, I walk into the grocery store and you turn right, let's say Publix, and that's the first thing you see on your right. Flowers. And I walk in, I'm upset about what's going on. And I walk in, I'm, I'm interested in buying something different, but I see the flowers and I think to myself, maybe this is an opportunity for me to buy some flowers, go home, say I'm sorry, make things right. I say I saw flowers. I didn't say I bought flowers. I'm just telling you the truth. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Let's say my son and I, we get into an argument during the day. There's a disagreement that takes place. There's something painful that's said back and forth. And at night then when he goes to bed and he lays down and I go in there to kiss him goodnight and say his prayers, I have an opportunity. It doesn't mean reconciliation is going to happen. It means there's an opportunity for reconciliation to happen. It depends on how I respond to the situation. I can make things right with my wife if I choose to. I can make things right with my son if I choose to, it seems to me in chapter 42, this plot twist that, that God enters into the story is an opportunity for Joseph and his family to be reconciled to one another. And so maybe even this morning, maybe you're a father and you've not talked to your son in 15 years and it's been so long you don't even know why anymore. Like what was the disagreement in the first place? You can't even remember. Maybe someone has harmed you, someone you should have trusted but they harmed you and it's haunted you ever since. Maybe someone has said something to you years ago and you've carried it with you all along the way, all of these years. Whatever it is in our life, we've experienced some kind of pain relationally. I believe God needs us, wants us to be resilient to experience a reconciliation that could take place within our life and he creates opportunity for it. So chapter 42, Joseph's brothers show up on the scene. They end up going to Egypt to find grain. And the Bible says they come before Joseph and as they come before him, they don't recognize him, but they bow down before him. And here's what it says in chapter 42, verses eight and nine. It says, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams and then said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Remember the dream that Joseph had was of these sheaves bowing down to his sheaf, remember? So as soon as his brothers show up and they bow down before him, Joseph, I'm sure in his mind, goes instantly back to that dream. He knows exactly who they are. And do you recognize the first emotional response he has to this opportunity? What is it? Anger. 
He accuses them of being spies. Surely you're here to see all the land that's unprotected because Joseph has the power to do anything he wants to do to these men, doesn't he? He can ruin their life the way they ruined his life 20 years previous. And it seems to be, upon first interaction, Joseph is very, very angry. But a few verses later, here's what it says in verse 22 through 24. Then Reuben, one of the brothers, realizes they're in big trouble. And he thinks that it's because of what took place with Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph yet, but he's, he's blaming the brothers for what they've done. He says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, talking about Joseph, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to what? Weep. He turned away from them and he began to weep. Joseph goes from anger a few verses later, now he's weeping. He's broken by the things that's being said because he realizes they totally remember what they've done 20 years previous. A few verses later again, chapter 23 now, 30 and 31. Here's what it says. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Benjamin, J Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. After he washed his face, he came back out and controlling himself said, serve the food. You can see within Joseph all throughout the story, eight chapters from 42 through 50, you see Joseph vacillate between emotions from anger to sadness, to deep emotions, being grieved to tears. Here's what I've recognized in my life. Reconciliation has a tendency to be preceded by a range of emotions. When it comes to being reconciled with someone else, too often, there's a lot of emotions that we go through before there's ever any kind of, of, any kind of restoration. Here's why. I believe reconciliation is a wrestle. Reconciliation is a wrestle. Now, for those of us, we read through the book of Genesis, we get to see eight chapters of Joseph wrestling with how he should respond to the situation. He knows he's been hurt. He knows he's been harmed. He knows he probably could be justified to do whatever he wants to to his brothers. So he goes from anger to sadness to sadness to anger, back and forth, back and forth in frustration because reconciliation is a wrestle. Maybe you know what this feels like. Maybe you've had this opportunity for a reconciliation of some kind and, and, and part of you really wants to, but part of you also knows if I do this, it's gonna be painful. If I, if, I, if I dive back into this, it's gonna be hard. And so we wrestle back and forth. My son Owen is six years old and he loves to wrestle. It is his favorite thing on the planet. So oftentimes I'll come home and he'll be like, dad, get down on the carpet. I want to wrestle you. I'm like, okay. So I get down on all fours. He's six years old. So I'm not trying to brag, but it's not very hard to beat him. So I can just throw him on the ground and pin him down and we continue on. But he, he's relentless. I mean, he never stops. And I, I can imagine that as a six-year-old boy now, I mean, one day he will be able to probably beat me. Dad's in the room. Is this true? I mean, one day he's probably going to be able to pin me. Might be a while. But I can tell he's never going to give up. He's always going to grab my arm, grab my legs, jump on my back. It's going to be a part of what he does the rest of his life. But one day he will. I think when it comes to restoration, when it comes to reconciliation, when it comes to being resilient in terms of relationships, I think it's a wrestle because we too have to be willing to kind of lean into this over and over and over again. It's going to be painful. There'll be times where we find ourselves angry. There'll be times where we want to just cry. There'll be times where we want to give up. We want to defend ourselves. Sometimes we want to blame somebody else. But the truth is, in order to find reconciliation, we may have to lean into this over and over and over again because reconciliation may begin here. 
but it's probably going to end someplace else. It may be a long time before this takes place. But what I've noticed within scripture is that God is not in a hurry, but God is always looking to restore. But the experience, true reconciliation that Joseph wants to experience, what we want him to experience within the story is going to be a wrestle. So after Joseph sends his brothers back to his father in Canaan, after he demands that Benjamin is brought back here, after he slips a silver cup into their backpack to uh, accuse them of, of not being honest, all these things are testing that's going on between Joseph and his brothers over the next eight chapters. We see it over and over and over again. But eventually in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1 through 5, we see Joseph reveal himself to his brothers for the very first time. Here's what it says. Then Joseph could no longer control himself because of his, all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph as he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence, as they should be. Then it says this, don't miss this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery in Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So I think what happens here in this passage is as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, as he breaks down and he weeps, there are two cornerstones that he introduces us to when it comes to reconciliation. The first one is this, truth. Truth. Joseph tells the truth. What I love in this story is Joseph looks at them, he says, listen, I am Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. I'm the one that you put in the pit. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. You ruined my life 20 years ago. He tells them the truth. And when he tells them the truth, it might be within our life the same kind of way of us saying, hey, listen, you just need to know you hurt me. You need to know that the things that you said to me, it did something to me deep within me a long, long time ago. The way you didn't value, it did something to me. You didn't consider your actions and they harmed me. You broke trust. You took advantage of me. Truth has to be a part of reconciliation. Being truthful. Here's what's taken place in this broken relationship. It's been painful for me. I'm not saying I'm not at fault too, but here's what's truthfully taken place. Here's how it's hurt me. There was a student years ago who came through our youth program who I was a good friend with through middle school and through high school and I'd invested in him for many, many years and I loved this kid. And he went to school in Tennessee and uh, his freshman year while he was in Tennessee, he, he texted me one day and he texted me he was in need of help. I mean, he really needed somebody to come alongside of him and talk with him. And I'm ashamed to say that as he texted me, I read it and I never got back to it. I never texted him back. And probably three months later, I was thinking about him. And so I, I sent him just kind of a general text. I'm like, hey man, thinking about you, hope you're doing good. And I'll never forget, because he wrote me back. He said, listen, um, you just need to know that three months ago, I reached out to you and you weren't there. Like I reached out to you, I needed somebody and I thought I could count on you and you didn't respond and you, and you weren't there to talk to. And that hurt me big time. And so he said, listen, I, I'm not really interested in like having some kind of like conversation right now because I'm kind of hurt by this whole thing. And so I'd appreciate it if we didn't pretend like that didn't happen. And as a youth pastor, as somebody who really cares about students, I was, I was mortified. 
that I had missed that opportunity. I couldn't believe it. And so I didn't know what else to do. And I told him, you don't have to forgive me at all. But I just want you to know I'm sorry. I did not mean to do that. I would never mean to do that, to, to hurt you and to harm you. And I apologize. And I would love to say that it was like all perfect and everything was right back. It took months for us to kind of re- rebuild that trust and rebuild that friendship once again. And I ended up doing his wedding years later and we're great friends now, but I hurt him at that point in time. And I knew I did. And what I, what I loved about him and still love about him is even as a young college student, he was honest and brave enough to say to me, listen, you hurt my feelings by the way you treated me, by the things that you did or you didn't do. You see, a part of reconciliation has to be truth. We can't just brush everything under the rug like everything is fine. Sometimes we have to say, listen, this was painful. This was hard. You hurt me and you need to know that. But the second piece of what Joseph does here is he offers grace. I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. You sent me to Egypt. But then he says, but don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be angry with yourselves because God has been up to something behind the scenes the entire time. We didn't know about it. But now I see that he's using me to help save many lives. And it wouldn't have happened apart from what you've done. That's grace. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that we have to look someone in the face who's hurt us and harmed us and be like, thank you for the pain you've caused me. No. But every single thing that happens within our life, I believe the Bible teaches us over and over and over again, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, ha- the harmful, the painful, the hurtful, God will use all of it for the good of those who love him. We have to believe that. God can use every situation, every circumstance, the good things and the painful things God will use within our life. This is what Joseph is testifying to. So he offers truth, but he also offers grace and realizing that God has used it within his life to make a difference. What would happen if we were to recognize that God never wastes anything? God never wastes anything. That our hurt, our pain, our struggle, our trial, all of it, God can use to make a difference in people's lives. And so maybe there's a couple in the church and they've been hurt by unfaithfulness within the marriage, but they've experienced restoration. They've been reconciled to one another. Who better to walk alongside of another couple who's going through the same thing than them? That God might use their pain, their hurt, their struggle, their trial to be a place of hope for someone else. I'm going to say there's a family and and there's this kid in the family who's gotten into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of issues. That family's been resilient with that child over and over and over again. And eventually there's reconciliation. That relationship is restored. Who better to walk alongside of other families who are experiencing the same thing than that couple right there? To say, I know exactly what you're going through. I know what it feels like. And guess what? You can make it outside the other end. You can bounce back. You can be resilient. Joseph says, the truth, truth is you've harmed me, you've hurt me deeply. But also, I realize that God is doing something in the middle of all of it. Something that we learn from this passage, too, is that reconciliation has far-reaching effects. You see, Joseph being reconciled to his brothers, his brothers showing back up, Joseph being in the situation that he's in, it's not just benefiting Joseph's brothers, it's benefiting the entire region. Joseph is blessing the entire region by the things that he's done, by providing food for all of them. Reconciliation has far-reaching effects. You know, none of us in this room, we exist within a vacuum, do we? All of us have relationships, connections, and ties around us. And too often, when there's friction within the family, when there's friction between friends, when there's difficulty with people around us, we eventually take that kind of burden, that anger, that bitterness, and it spills over into the people around us. I mean, I've seen it in my own life. 
someone's hurt me or harmed me and I'm, I'm frustrated with them, but I end up taking it out on my kids. I end up taking it out on my, on my wife, on my friendships. But reconciliation has the same kind of effect. When we make things right, sometimes that anger, that bitterness, that frustration falls to the wayside. Guess who's the benefactor? Every person we have relationship with. Our, our kids can see it within us. Our spouse can see it within us. People around us can see it within us that we have a new kind of freedom. A burden has been lifted off of us as we found reconciliation has far reaching effects. What if your anger could subside? What if your bitterness could ease? What if your broken heart could actually be mended? How would that affect your kids? How would that affect your grandkids? How would that affect your spouse? How would that affect your relationship with God? It's all connected. I think Nelson Mandela puts it so well when he says this, true reconciliation does not consist in merely forgetting the past. True reconciliation is not about just forgetting the past. Suck it up, move on, forget about it, everything's fine. That's not reconciliation. And as painful as it may be, sometimes we have to enter back into the past to find healing so we can have a more healthy future. We've got to go there as difficult as it may be. I really think there's kind of three different ways that I see reconciliation take place. The first one, the most ideal, is when you have both parties who realize they've had some kind of part to play. And both parties are willing to say, here's the truth, I know I hurt you, here's the truth, you hurt me. And there's grace extended both ways. And reconciliation happens between both parties. That's, that's the most ideal. But sometimes we don't have control over that. Sometimes reconciliation simply means I have the conversation, I tell the truth, I offer grace, but even that other party may not receive it or respond in any kind of way. But I've done everything I can do to live at peace. I've offered grace, I've offered truth, and I've done what I can do, and I've got to move on with my life. And sometimes what has taken place is so heinous, so awful, so difficult that it's not healthy for you to enter back into that place, to have a conversation with that person. And sometimes that person who hurt you so deeply, they're not even here anymore. Maybe they've passed away. So sometimes reconciliation looks like us in our own hearts, in our own lives, being honest, telling the truth, offering grace, and saying, I've done all that I can do. Now I've got to move on. It's reconciliation either way. We do what we can do. We cannot control anyone else, but we can't just forget about the past. We've got to hit it head on. So at the end of this story, Joseph's brothers end up coming back to Egypt, as does his father. The whole family ends up in Egypt. Reconciliation takes place. And Joseph literally is the savior of that entire family, the entire, at that point in time, nation of Israel. Joseph has been the one to come alongside of them and rescue them. In chapter 50, something different happens because Joseph's father dies. And here's what it says in chapter 50, the very end of this story of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we've done? You see, they don't trust him. They don't really trust him. Now that old daddy Jacob's gone, now Joseph's going get to his, get his revenge. Now he's going to do what he's always wanted us to do. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers their sins and the wrongs they've committed to you in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God and your father. When their message came to Joseph, what's he do? He weeps. He realizes they don't trust the reconciliation that has taken place. And here's how he responds. 
His brothers came to him and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The saving of many lives. This is probably the most famous verse of the entire story of Joseph. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Let's just be truthful and honest. There are some people in our lives that potentially have, have done heinous things to us and they've done it on purpose. They've meant, they've meant it for evil. But what Joseph tells us is in the middle of even all that, God is still at work. God is still at work. God is going to use it. He won't waste it. He's going to use it for good. But here's what I know for sure. Here's where we end. Reconciliation, restoration, if we're going to experience it, we have to be resilient because reconciliation comes with a cost every single time. Reconciliation comes with a cost. Look at Joseph. 20 years of betrayal. 20 years of trying to survive all that his brothers did to him. But he lays it down. He lays down his pride. He lays down his power. He sacrifices it in order to have reconciliation. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? Jesus comes to earth, walks among us, and eventually at the end of his life, right before he's crucified, arrested, buried in the the tomb, he's having a time with his disciples and he washes the disciples' feet. And guess who one of the disciples is that he washes their feet? Judas, the one who's gonna betray him, turn him over to the authorities. And yet Jesus is there washing his feet anyway. It's sacrifice. When I was in middle school, my family, um, were, my family was in missions for about four or five years while I was in middle school. And so we, we worked with the organization called Mercy Ships. And so my parents were a part of this organization. I was in middle school. My sister was in elementary school. And when we first got there, one of the first things we did was we went on a three-month mission trip around the country, all different locations, and eventually into Mexico for two weeks at the very end. And while we were on this trip, there was a whole group of people that were with us from all over the country. We didn't know any of them when this whole trip started. And about a week and a half into our trip, there was some infighting that started happening with the group that was serving on this team together. And it gotten so bad that there was a mother and a son in this group who had decided that the next day they were going to fly home. They were done with the whole experience. They were going to leave and, um, and never see us again. And the leaders of our trip, there were two young guys, like 24 years old, um, a guy named Lewis and Cardes was one of them. And they got together the night before and they prayed and they felt like God told them to gather everyone together in the living room the next day. So we all came in the living room. We all sat down. I was in middle school, but I could even tell there was a lot of tension in the room. It didn't feel really great. We all sat down. And then all of a sudden, Lewis walks into the room and he had a basin full of water. And he went to someone around the circle and he knelt down with that basin of water and he washed their feet. And Louis had long hair, uh, like... Connor Henson, if you know Connor here at the church. And he, he had long hair. He washed his feet and he dried their feet with his hair. And he went to the next person. He washed their feet. Went around the whole circle. And people just started weeping. Just started weeping. And eventually everyone took turns with this basin, basin washing each other's feet around the circle. Saying sorry, offering forgiveness. And re- reconciliation took place. But here's what I know. It costs us something. For Jesus, it cost him his life to reconcile us to God. For Joseph, it cost him 20 years of his life laying down that pride. For Louis, it cost him his pride to kneel down before someone and wash their feet. 
And maybe this morning, it's going to cost you something in order to find reconciliation, to be resilient enough to make things right with someone. Maybe you're going to have to be the one to make the first phone call, to send that text, to write that letter, to be willing to go there in your mind and your heart and to let it go. Maybe it's going to take you saying sorry, even though you're not the one who should say sorry for the sake of relationship, for the sake of reconciliation. And so this morning, I know there are things in my life, places in my life, relationships in my life where I need to be the first one to take the step, to make the phone call, to send the text. I want to be bold enough and resilient enough to do that. I invite you this morning, if God has brought someone to your mind, maybe, maybe it's time to open that door, to see that opportunity and to take it. Would you join me this morning? Let's pray together. God, we know that you are about reconciliation. You are about restoration. You make things new. And you've proved it to us by sending your son Jesus to die on a cross that we might have right relationship with you, God. But the Bible also tells us that because we've been reconciled to you, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You've literally handed to us, God, the opportunity to make right relationship with people around us. So Father, I pray for every person here this morning, particularly during this season, where it seems like everybody is looking for a fight. All over Facebook, all over the news, everywhere we look, someone's looking for a fight. I pray, God, you would help us to be people of peace who would offer truth and who would offer grace that we might be in right relationship with one another. Help us, God, as far as it is by us to live at peace with one another. And so for any person this morning, you've had a face or a name come to mind today, would you pray about God opening an opportunity, an environment for reconciliation to take place? And may you have the boldness and the resilience to step into that. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.